Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, uh, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Simon Thompson. How are you doing, Simon? I'm, I'm doing very well, John. As long as I stay out of the water, I'm absolutely on sound ferroterma. Excellent. Yeah, I hear you've been, you've uh, been recovering from uh, an injury. Um, several, actually. So, <laughs> my, 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 my sea days are well and truly over. So, so sea swimming was supposed to be your salvation and it ended up being your damnation. Um, my first attempt sunk without trace. And, uh, yeah. Smashed your ankles to pieces. I, absolutely, John. Not, oh, dear. Not, not good, not good. Well, it's great to have you in, in the studio today. Um, and we're going to talk about bargain chairs. It's, I mean, there's tons going on. And, and, I, and actually, funny enough, I think... What we're going to talk about in bargain shares it encompasses a lot of what's happening in the broader markets. It's, it's had an amazing six months. I, I produced the performance table in this week's magazine, and in the first six months since the end of January when we actually launched the portfolio, it did 28.8%. To put that into perspective, the FTSE all-share index, total return index, that is, did 10.6%, so it beat it by 18 percentage points. And, and actually, I think you're, you're sort of underplaying the outperformance there because, I mean, this portfolio you've put together is largely AIM, and AIM's been even worse in terms of its performance this year. Oh, AIM's been terrible. I mean, the AIM index, total return index, between the 31st of January and 31st of July this year, 3% total return absolutely awful. So it's generated return 10 times almost as much as the AIM index. I mean, what, what I mean, I mean, we'll go into some of the sort of detail behind where, where the performance has come from in, in a minute. The, the thing that strikes me about the, the, the returns that you've seen so far is that hardly any of it has come from dividends. And I, and I think that, that's, that's intriguing. Because you know you would have expected some 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 uh, you know some payouts to have uh, to have boosted it, and and they're still to come, as far as I understand it. They they are. I mean, for example, Inland Homes, one one company I've written up this week, and I'm very very keen on it. Still, it's um, a house builder and land buyer, strategic land developer. At the end of this month, it'll be paying out its um, its, its dividends. Um, it's paid, it has paid out a small dividend so far, but it's mainly. I mean, it's, the shares are up seventeen and a half percent. But what are we looking at here? What's what are we expecting? Uh, a, f- a few more pennies on top of that, and um, which you know, in, in the context of a share price sixty eight sixty nine pence is good, and an entry price of fifty seven pence is good. Um, yeah, I mean, the dividends weren't. A major feature of this year's portfolio is simply because when I put it together, if we go back to the last quarter of 2014, equity markets were being absolutely battered on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and I took a view at the start of this year that um, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell, when he had his vault fast in December and said, previously that the Fed tightening of interest rates was actually an autopilot. Well, his fault fast was. Well, actually, we're open to more moderate stance monetary uh, policy. And the markets at the turn of the year basically took that as a reason to buy into equities on the basis that the next move in interest rates in the US was going to be a cut. And my view at the time was that the best stocks to buy um, at that point in the cycle were those that had been battered to a huge extent and were deep into bargain basement territory. And as Ben Graham, uh, whose um, seminal work, The Intelligent Investor, I've actually based this portfolio on and always have done, always says, build in a margin of safety into your um, your acquisition price. So, and- so were these companies that had cut dividends or never paid dividends? 
Um, some of them had never paid dividends, but because the risk-off environment was so savage in Q4 2018, when I was sifting through my stock screens, I noted quite a few companies that I thought, wow, if the equity market starts rallying, these stocks are going to rally really, really hard. Um, I mean, there's other rationale behind the portfolio as well, but dividends for this portfolio wasn't the top priority. It was a play in the equity market. It's a cheap, a cheap money play, basically, or well, a continuation of cheap money play, or a continuation of non-tightening play. It, it, it was, it was on the basis that the equity markets were so oversold at the end of December last year, and. Um, any bounce back, any risk on environments would lead to the biggest rally in the stocks that have been battered the most. Um, of course, the investments case behind them has got to stack up before actually buying them. Um, but I mean, that's the reason why Futura Medical has trebled in value. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, I mean, value, what you're talking about is value. Stocks mm-hmm. that unloved stocks that, that, uh, that are trading well below their sort of uh, intrinsic value. Absolutely. Um, but value has not been a, a popular strategy. And I, I, I don't think it's been value that's been driving the markets, you know, in, in, a, in the risk on environment you're talking about. So, so I mean, I, what I'm saying is, it seems like you've had to be especially uh, prudent about the kind of value you're, you're looking for here. I mean, what, there's value and there's value. Oh, absolutely. I, I've taken... Um about 50 companies out of 1,700 I looked at. I then screened that down to 10, um, looked into each company in quite some detail, a huge amount of research, John. I did over 100 odd hours of research into this this feature back in uh, end of January this year. And um, I focused on companies that, even if I was wrong with my market strategy, that the marginal safety built into the valuations at the entry price at the end of January this year was such that the probability of actually losing money on those companies was pretty remote, as taken as a portfolio, I hasten to add. And the, there was a huge possibility of actually beating the market, even if it's going to flatline. Mm. Um, which, which is interesting because, I mean, you know, obviously that risk on trade came to pass the first six months of the year were very very strong indeed the last month not so much and and yet you you know your portfolio has 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 sort of continued to do different things to to the market in, in the in the more recent week period well absolutely i I've, on the um my pc upstairs we've got a spreadsheet with today's prices and my portfolio is still up 28.8 percent uh since the 31st of january um, the difference being that the FTSE All Share Index and the FTSE AIM Index have lost chunks of return. So this table's out, this table's out of date already. Well, we produced, in, in terms of the outperformance. Well, we, we produced a, another table at the end of the feature with the prices as of Monday this week, um, and that was before the big market sell-off this week. And I can actually give you the latest prices. So my portfolio is still up twenty-eight point eight percent, which is what's it was at the end of July. However, the FTSE All Share Index, which was up 10.6% over the six-month period, has actually lost 7% in the last 12 trading days. The FTSE AIM Index, All Share Index, has lost 8.5%. These are using the current prices around about midday today. Whereas my portfolio is more or less unchanged. So what, what I'm saying is that the, the the mix of the portfolio is such that it's actually got 
it has proven defensive qualities so far through this sell-off. Um, even if it gives up a few percents, well, that bears into insignificance compared with the FTSE All Share Index or the FTSE AIM Index, which are losing 7 or 8% in the last 10 trading days of August. You're not tempted to bail and just sell everything. We'll take that profits on bargain shares for the year and, uh, you know... Um, and, uh, and 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 come out, you know, come out a winner. The the, the market outlook is is looking pretty uh, pretty dodgy. But basically, people the the risk appetite has changed for two reasons in the last two and a half weeks. One is um, the obvious one that um, President Trump just can't stop himself with his trade war with China, and the possibility of three hundred billion dollars worth of um, extra. Um, tariff goods at an extra 10% or whatever he wants to slap on them has obviously rattled some people. Uh, secondly... But we've known about that for some time. Well, no, I mean, China, this, this has been ramping up for a while. It, well, it has, but China retaliated. They, they let the currency dip below um, the seven mark to mm. the dollar. Um, the key point about that is that it makes their exports cheaper. So, in effect, they're exporting deflationary pressure to Western markets at just the wrong time of the, in the economic cycle. Um, and that's worried people. Um, the other point is that the the Fed, Jay Powell, and he's backtracked on this. But anyway, at the Fed meeting at the last week of July, he said that the rate cut. So they did cut rates, which I predicted at the start of the year. It's a quarter percent. It's a quarter percent. Yeah. He had to do that anyway, because, you know, that's what the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, had guided, in effect, uh, reading between the lines to expect. Um, but, but the point was that instead of actually saying this is a start of a rate cutting cycle, he said this is a mid-cycle adjustment. Well, he's backtracked a bit on that, but it rattled investors. And on the basis that the S&P 500 was up over 21% and the Nasdaq up over 25% this year to the high point in July at the time of those rate cuts, then it was a reason for people to take some of the cash off the table. Mm. And that, that's what you're seeing at the moment. So the risk appetite has gone from a risk-on environment to a risk-off environment. People have put the money into treasuries, which is why you've seen the US 10-year uh, bond yield curve invert. But that's, you know, lots of people are talking about whether that signifies an, an imminent recession or not. Um, well, every time it inverts doesn't signify there is definitely going to be a recession. Um, true, every recession in the US has been preceded by an inversion of the yield curve, but not every inversion of the yield curve leads to a US recession. Mm. And actually, if you look at the UK in the 1990s, half the time the yield curve was inverted. We actually did quite well. Um, What's more important to markets now, as I see it, is the next Fed meeting, which is middle of um, September. Markets prior to this market sell-off, the equity market sell-off this week, were pricing in a 60% probability that the rates would be cut by another quarter of 1%. I'd say after what we've seen this week, that's a dead cert. I mean, there's a lot of firepower there to uh, to keep the rally going. The I mean, two, what is it, 2.25% now well, the, uh, well, exactly. the Fed rate? And, and basically, the Fed, if they take into account the deteriorating situation in Asia um, or China, US trade relations, and they take into account the economic data that's come out of Germany, which is absolutely dire, um, in, 
in fact, you know, what you're seeing in Germany just proves one thing to the UK that the EU as a bloc is more or less incapable of actually generating internal growth. It's actually dependent on export growth. Uh, and, and those exports, particularly in Germany's case, are going to, to China? Or, well, well, ex- well, well, exactly. A, a, a chunk of them are going to Asia. So if the Asian markets are rattled, then obviously some of the demand is going to dry up. It's going to impact the manufacturers in Germany. You're going to see that in the domestic data coming out. Um, so what I'm saying is that the Federal Reserve, come the September meeting, have got to take into account what they're seeing in Germany, what they're seeing in China, and ditto what the knock-on effect could be on the US economy. Now, the US economy does generate internal growth. It's quite an insular economy. Yes, you've got these massive corporations like Apple and Google, um, but a large chunk of the economic growth in the US is actually internal. Um, which is why President Trump can stand up and say various things um, to rattle other overseas markets when he's full in the knowledge that actually his economy is actually the strongest in the world. Mm. Um, That's something like a bit of a Mexican standoff at times. <laughs> well, 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 it is. I mean, it's, to be honest, it's, 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 I, I think we'll look back in history and say, did this really happen? Did it really but, help? Well, I I don't think it's going to help in any way at the moment because it's a zero-sum game. The US will suffer to some extent if they enter into a trade war with China. Obviously, the big US corporations will suffer. You've already seen that with Apple phone sales overseas and the the figures that it's reported. Mm. Um, Well, China has been, you know, certainly from the perspective of many of the sort of blue-chip global companies that that sort of are on the London market and, and obviously, you know, that some of those big US multinationals, China has been a target market for them. That's where the valuations have been supported. No, absolutely. And it it still will be. I mean, it's it's a game of chicken at the moment between um, Trump and um, Beijing. And my gut reaction will be that they will actually come to some sensible agreement. Um, You've got to let it play out. And my gut reaction is that what we're seeing in this volatility in financial markets will continue until the Fed have the next meeting and not only cut interest rates by at least a quarter percent, but actually signal, given what um, is actually happening in the global economy, that they're going to take a more benign approach to interest rate policy going forward. Mm. And I think that that could be the catalyst for the end of this volatility and a bounce back in the financial markets. So, so I've seen lots of people publishing charts on Twitter looking at, <laughs> I mean, you know, times of great stress in sort of you know, global politics. You know, People are really worried that this is the big one that's coming again this time. You think the Fed's got enough firepower to, 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 to see us through this little period of turmoil until some, some you know, some kind of you know, agreement can be reached somewhere uh, and that, that the markets will be all right for, for at least a, a few months? Well, I, I've, well, we we don't have long to wait. I mean, the next meeting's middle of September for the Fed's meeting, so um, they're not, not going to hold it, are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what what you'll perhaps see before that meeting is some rhetoric from either Jay Powell or another senior member of the committee coming out, explaining what their current thinking is, possibly just to soothe the market nerves, mm. um, because obviously, you know, the U.S. markets have rallied a huge amount since 
the depths of the last bear market in March 2009. You know, the S&P 500 back then was 666 points. It hit a high of 3,000 points at the end of July this year. So it's a huge, huge move in the markets. It's also predicated on profitability of the companies that are actually make up that index. But it is asking investors to be very brave at the moment. I mean, uh, it does feel like you have to be, you know, you're high for having to hold your nerve to be seen, here. We've seen this before. I, I remember in 2011, 2015, 2011, it was a Eurozone crisis, mm. debt crisis. And lo and behold, August, desperate month, um, FTSE 100 was down 13%. 2015, guess what? FTSE 100 down, around about 13%. So we've seen these large moves in global markets during the summer. Um, you could say, which you know, saying earlier, that there'd been a massive run up in the US market. It was just waiting for a catalyst to actually tell people or persuade people to actually take some of the money off the table, and that's what they're doing at the moment. And to be honest, you can't blame them. It's you know, they're mitigating risk um, by take, doing so. Um, but I, I still I still hold the view that the next Fed meeting is the most important thing that we're going to see for the rest of this year. Um, and that, coupled with this bond fight between Beijing and um, Washington, um, how that pans out will determine the direction of equity markets for quite some time beyond this year. Okay. We should talk again in a month, Simon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, let's uh, should we uh, should we dig into the portfolio um, because there's some really interesting individual stories here. I mean, one, one of the, uh, the the big stories of the uh, the last few weeks, which has really unnerved investors in in UK shares, has been Burford Capital. Um, we don't need to go into much detail about Burford. We've talked about it a lot, but you have uh, a peer of Burford in your portfolio, in your bargain shares portfolio, litigation capital management. Um, well, I mean, what's the what's the, what's the read across? Um, there isn't one. That and you always get this knee jerk reaction where where one company in a sector has bad news and people sell down the other companies in the sector without actually thinking. Actually, are they suffering from the same issues? Um, litigation capital is a tiny company compared with Burford. Um, is, is market capitalization currently, I'm just looking at the chart at the moment, is about £88 million thereabouts, whereas Burford is still, you know, it's a billion-pound-plus company, even after the massive falls in its share mm. price. The point about Burford, and I've, I've read the Muddy Waters report. I, I read it when it came out in the day because I've I followed Burford in the past and made readers a significant sum of money from from my advice on that one. Um, the point about Burford is that they mark up the value of their investments and they say conservatively during the process as they go through the litigation process through the courts. The difference with litigation capital is it holds its litigation investments on its balance sheet at cash. So if they invest a million dollars in a case, that's what it appears on the balance sheets. So it's conservative accounting. More important, well, actually, for both companies is, what's your success rate? Litigation capital is over 80%. If you look at all the cases dating back to 2011, 2012, completed cases, I hasten to add, not ones that are still pending. Um, and what's your return in capital? Well, for litigation capital, it's 117%. That's what their average return on invested capital is for those cases they've backed and completed, including the losses. And that's what... 
I guess, gives you comfort in those figures in a way that there there is some suspicion over the the kind of return on capital figures that that Berber has been presenting, and which has given Muddy opportunity, Muddy Waters, the opportunity to to. Uh, to, to, to cast out in the way it has. Well, I mean, just to give you one example, litigation capital three months ago, well, it wasn't even three months ago, they they announced that a class action that they'd funded on behalf of former shareholders of Discovery Metals, which was listed on the Australian Stock stock Exchange, and those, those investors with the backing of litigation capital took KPMG to court at the Australian Supreme Court. They won. The payment, the profit that um, litigation capital will get from that case will be between eight million Australian dollars and ten million Australian dollars. Well, ten million Australian dollars at current exchange rates, five point six million pounds sterling. Hooray for the weak pound! Absolutely. <laughs> but but the other thing is that the return on invested capital on that on that case, including um, the profit they'll make on it. Um, is around about 200%. And it's a period of about 24 months. So it's a short period. Their average period actually holding beginning to end for these litigation cases is 27 months on average. So it's not a long holding period. And that's just one case. There was another case, uh, which I commented on a few months ago, where there's about £3 million Australian dollars profit they'll make on case. Do, do, is it the fact that they're smaller that, that, that allows you, I mean, obviously the, the more conservative accounting policies, but it, you know, being smaller, you, you kind of have a better feel for, for what's happening here. I mean, it's a complex area. It's an incredibly complex area. I mean, and when I looked at it, it IPOs on the London market in December, uh, some smart fund managers actually backed it like Mighton. So that, that was a reason to actually have a look as well. When you actually see a fund manager who's got a decent track record actually mm. in investing in a company, um, but I looked through the history of their in the corporate presentation that accompanied the IPO, the history of their completed litigation cases, and what they actually were were they class actions was it was it corporate portfolio work what what was it, and I was happy with what's on paper, and which went into the IPO document. They said how they made the money, where they'd made the money, and the returns that they were getting. And the disclosure was very good. Um, I don't have any problem whatsoever with litigation capital. And the stock price, which was pound fifteen a few weeks ago, and I put readers in about 78 pence in this year's portfolio, is back to about 80 pence today. Now, to put that into perspective, that's about two times, 2.1 times book value despite the fact they've got cash on the balance sheet, there's no debt. Mm. It's, it's not the issue that Muddy Waters raised that Burford has got retail bonds outstanding. That's one of the issues that they raised. There's no debts on litigation capital's balance sheet. They're just recycling cash that they raised at the IPO to put into new investment uh, litigation cases. They're recycling the cash that they've received from completed cases back into new ones. That That's the business. Would it's, you carry on buying at the... Uh, I mean, I, I, I would, I, I would. I, on the same basis, when Burford Capital got to about four pounds eighty last week, having plunged from thirteen pounds at the start of the week, I thought this is utter madness. Well, you, I mean, you weren't entirely convinced by the Muddy Waters report. Well, I, I'm not for the simple fact that Muddy Waters use very explosive language, like insolvent and inflammatory language, like that at the start of the report, basically to try and scare people. Um, Muddy Waters also, and it's been disclosed since, were closing off 
part of their short position on the Tuesday, having released released a tweet on the Monday that they were going to issue a report, issued the report early on the Tuesday. I downloaded it when I saw what was happening to Burford's share price. And they closed part of the position on the Tuesday. So, I mean, that tells you the modus operandi of um, Muddy Waters. But one telling point in the Burford Capital case and that Muddy Waters report was that they they were trying to say that the carrying value that Burford Capital have of the Peterson case, and this case involves litigation that Burford Capital funded on behalf of a former shareholder in an Argentinian oil company that was expropriated by the Argentinian government. And Muddy Waters were saying that there was no way you could actually value it at anything like Burford Capital had. Well, to put this into perspective, Burford Capital invested 18 million US dollars to fund the litigation. They've sold shares or interests in the claim to realise $236 million US dollars. They still retain a 61% stake in the claim. The last slug of equity they sold off was 10% of the claim for $100 million in cash. Now, there's a secondary market in that claim. And irrespective of what Muddy Waters believe it is or is not worth, there are secondary market investors out there putting up cash to buy investments in the claim on the basis that it's worth $1 billion. Well, hypothetically, the 61% um, that Burford Capital still owns in the Peterson case is worth $610 million. Well, that's a chunk of money. And the carrying value of that investment is nothing like on their balance sheet. Mm. Um, it's not worthless. Um, there, was a, there was a lot of incendiary wording in the report. Um, I'm going to leave it to the litigators on both sides to actually get to the bottom of this. But, but there should be enough of them, given the business they're in. But, well, uh, absolutely. And, um, but, but clearly, it's, it's a perfect storm because it's actually hit the stock market at a time when you've had this risk-off environment, when people are a bit jittery. And um, and also they have, I mean, you know, we talked about the transparency in litigation capitals uh, accounting policies and it's, you know, it's communication with the market, which, ha- which in honesty have been somewhat absent in, in the case of Burford. So, so they picked a good target as well. So where there were suspicions that... Uh, well, they, they, they had suspicions and they, uh, they've, well, as the name says, they've muddied the water. <laughs> <laughs> Muddy waters run deep. Let's uh, let's let's move on from uh, from Burford. I think enough uh, column inches have been expended on Burford. Um, the, I guess the main takeaway there is that the read across the litigation capital management is is not there. The, the, there. There isn't a read across. Should we talk about? Um, I mean, you said that you've done a lot of work on that to, to look into the individual cases, and I think that's a really. I mean, that's that's how you should go about. It valuing something like this which is it's in essence it's a kind of fund you know so you're looking at what it's holding a lot of your portfolio this year are are not dissimilar they are sort of collective investments uh and and therefore require or which i know you put in with your within your hundred hours a lot of research to to, you know to to understand what what's within those portfolios and they've all done pretty well 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 i mean for example um tmt investments um I'd followed this one since the IPO. It came to AIM in December 2011, 100 cents a share. It's backed. 50% of the shares are actually owned by former Russian bankers, which, you know, that some people may have a, issues with, with Russia per se. Um, I don't. 
Um, I was more concerned with GMT about what are you actually buying? So for, for years, the PR was contacting me and saying, Simon, um, these guys know what they're doing. They're, they're investing in Silicon Valley tech stocks. Um, they're going to do well. That's, for me, that's not enough. So, no, no, uh, and it wasn't enough. And, and I, I said, is there any research? No, there isn't any research. How do I value them? How, how do I possibly know as a UK investor working for Financial Times Limited in London, how do I possibly know what these companies could be worth? I need a track record first. So when I saw TMT Investments um, last year and noticed a few announcements and also the discount to net asset value as well, I thought, wait a second, these guys have delivered. And by my calculations, they'd increased their net asset value from a pound at flotation in December 2011 to about three pounds 20 cents a share by the end of 2018 when I did my performer estimates um, in, in the portfolio. And I, I noticed a few things. So, for, for example, they invested in a company called Reek, W-R-I-K-E.com. They do like collaborative work management software. They, they boast Fortune 500 companies, um, S&P 500 companies as clients. Well, Vista Equity Partners bought out um, a large chunk of Reek and TMT at the same time basically cashed in um, their stake. Well, they'd invested $1 million in it in 2012, and they cashed out for $22.6 million. Now, that isn't the only one. I also noticed, and I noticed this ages ago, that they had a stake in Taxify. Well, Taxify is now known as Bolt. Bolt came to London. It's the it's like Uber, basically, mm-hmm. um, but without some of the issues that Uber has. Um, but I noted that they had a stake in that, and Daimler last year had invested in a funding round, $175 million, by the way, in a funding round that valued um, Taxify, now known as Bolt, at a billion US dollars. Unicorn. Absolutely. But, believe it or not, the investment TMT made in that was $320,000 for 1.7% stake four years ago. Now, that investment, I'm waiting for the accounts for TMT to come out, but I believe that investment now is worth $22 million. And clearly they could sell it because you've got, if you've got the likes of Daimler splashing out hundreds of millions of dollars because they think this is the future, then clearly there's going to be a buyer in the secondary market for, for that stake if they ever want to dispose of it. Even if it's Uber who want to take out a competitor. Well, well, well exactly. And, you know, that, that's, that's not the only investment with, um, with legs that I saw in their portfolio. So I went through the portfolio and thought, well, wait a second, if they start delivering on some of these... Um, and also, li- I liked. I thought that if the perception in the financial markets was that the Fed was going to cut interest rates, then you see a flattening—not an inversion of the yield curve, but a flattening of the yield curve. And when you actually value tech stocks, it's generally on a discounted cash flow model. So you take the net present value of cash flows mm. years years out on the basis that there's no profits today, so you so you can't well, well, do a multiple well, base value. Well, well, exactly. So if you if you're basically flattening the yield curve, then you're actually reducing the interest rates at you know ten year maturities, fifteen year maturities, thirty year maturities, and what that's doing for these tech stocks is in present value terms actually increasing the value. So I thought, well, actually, that's going to be another kicker for my technology um, investments. TMT wasn't the only one. You know, it's done fantastically well. 
Um, well, you've got Augmentum. Uh, Augmentum. Augmentum is really interesting. And I, I guess I, I, what, what I'm interested in here is these are the holdings that it has, and I know you've looked at them in detail, are companies that we, we know about through our writings on the Investors Chronicle. The, it, it seems to be investing in the kind of fintech companies that are changing the shape of the, the, the market for investors, like our readers. I, I love these disruptive tech companies that they they don't carry the same overheads as um, current operators in the markets, and they can actually go in, be it online banking or online broking. Broking, or, I mean, inter- interactive is the one that stands out for well, me. Well, yeah. I, I've got the spreadsheet in front of me, John. So, so when I looked at it, they had a three point seven percent. This is Augmentum, a three point seven percent stake in Interactive Investor, which they were valuing at three million pounds sterling. Now that implied. You know, valuation sub a hundred million pounds for interactive investor. I went through all the accounts at companies companies house. You can do it; it's free, by the way. And um, I built up a profile of interactive investor, and I noted that in the two thousand seventeen financial year, it was an eighteen month period, but this company had made a pre tax profit of ten point eight million pounds sterling. No. Was, it, was this before? Because I know it's it's been sort of involved in some uh, consolidating uh, transactions. Really. So hasn't it bought yeah, yeah, uh, Alliance, yeah, so the, Alliance Trust? So this is pre-Alliance this Trust. Is pre, this is pre. So I, I thought... That's well, Alliance Trust rather. That's Alliance Trust platform business, not Alliance Trust. I, 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 I want to make that very clear. Platform business. So, so I, I looked at it and thought, well, you know, if they own 3.7% stake, £3 million, and it's making £10.8 million profits over an 18-month period... If this was to scale up, which it has done, it's now got 300,000 clients, by the way, post the Alliance Trust um, acquisition. Mm. It's got 35 billion sterling um, assets under management or administration. I thought, well, if it's to scale up, there is only one way that underlying value of that investment can go. Surprise, surprise, Augmentum released results a couple of months ago, and they've marked up the value from £3 million to £10 million. Mm. Do, you, do you think they're being helped along as well by some of the uh, problems that we're seeing elsewhere in the platform market? I mean, Har- Hargreaves is a great business, um, but some of some of Hargreaves' business practices have come under a bit of scrutiny as a result of the uh, the, the goings on at, uh, at Woodford. This this can only be helpful to uh, to a, a disruptor like Interactive. Oh no, no, it will be. I mean, for for example. Um Hargreaves Lansdowne top 50 funds um, the week that the Woodford funds were actually suspended trading in. Um, through people's um, letterboxes, um, the investment times for um, Hargreaves Lansdowne popped through the letterbox and lo and behold, there were the Woodford funds as their, one of their top 50 investments. Um, it, was, it was bad timing, but you've got to remember Hargreaves had you know pushed that those funds for such a long time. And there's hundreds of thousands of retail investors locked in at the moment who are going to be very, very unhappy. Well, they're going to be even more unhappy because they're going to lose money as well when they eventually can get out. Um, so the likes of Interactive Investor must be benefiting. They must be. Because if, you, if you've been reading about Hargreaves Lansdowne in the press, which is difficult not to read about it, and you know, you've got the damage of the fallout for, from the suspension of the Woodford funds, um, you're going to have a careful look at all the operators in the markets. And if there's any red flags over some of them, you're going to think, well, 
Maybe not. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I mean, in, in terms of um, you know the way interactive stacks up in valuation terms against someone like Hargreaves or AJ Bill, it looks cheap. Well, it does. I mean, according to um, my, my latest figures, um, Hargreaves Lansdowne's got about eighty six billion, or that's the last figure I've got. Assets under management, um, it's got a nine billion pounds market cap, one point one three six million clients. Um, Earnings multiple currently this year's forecast about thirty three to thirty five times earnings, so it's highly rated. Mm. AJ Bell forty eight billion assets under management or administration, one point six billion market cap, even more expensive, thirty eight times earnings, two hundred fourteen thousand clients. Well, for interactive investor, you've got thirty five billion assets under administration, three hundred thousand clients. It's profitable. I'm waiting for the next accounts to actually come out. They're due in the next week or so. Um, so I, I don't have the 2018 profit figures. So I will add it to our conversation in a month's time. But but needless to say, they're going to be good. Um, and that investment is now in the books for £270 million equity value for interactive investor, according to Augmentum's account. Well, I know which one I'd rather hold out of those three. And it's not Hargreaves Lansdowne or AJ Bell. And luckily you do. I do, John. We, let's not talk about Futura, because uh, I know you've written a lot about that, and we want to leave read sure. something to read about in the actual magazine. But but I'm going to... What you haven't written about, which I you know I, I know you'd rather not talk about, is the underperformer in the portfolio, sure. which is Driver. Um, What's going on there? I mean, it's the, it's, it's the only one that's um, it's, underwater. It's, it's the only one. They're, they're a construction and engineering consultancy. They've got operations... They've got 322 staff, they've got operations in North America, Europe. Those businesses are doing very well. Profits in the first half of this year were up 40% or something like that from those two operations. Um, They've got operations in the Middle East and Asia, which have suffered. And this company is still going to generate profit growth, by the way. Um, But in the first half, they had to absorb... um, restructuring costs because they see what's happening in the Middle East and decided to take action immediately. They spent £500,000 restructuring, cutting 32 staff. Mm. So it's quite dramatic. Um, they're going to save £800,000 worth of costs in the second half. Um, the financial year end is 30th of September. Um, when I interviewed um, Gordon Wilkinson, and um, he's the CEO, and David Kilgore, who's the FT, I had them on the phone for about an hour after the warning um, because this company had been doing fantastically well for the two previous years. Utilisation rate, as I said, it's an engineering um, um, construction consultancy. It does projects, evaluation, um, expert witness, project management, dispute resolution, that type of things, pre-contract work. Um, Utilisation rates of its staff was about 80%. Mm. Um, It was having earnings upgrades. It was beating broker forecasts. So when I included it in the portfolio i thought yeah great another year um of progress and it still will be another year of progress the company is still likely to increase pre-tax profits from 2.7 to 3.5 million pounds it's just that that is less than analysts were expecting in january this year it's going to hurt shares in the current environment i mean it's uh... well exactly um but what what i say is that we went through uh with finance director and the chief executive the contracts they had in place Oh, this is a few months ago. Contracts they had in place, the cost that they'd taken out of the business, um, 
how much of the second half sales forecast was already booked, or the conversion rate of um, inquiries to firm contracts was. Mm. And they were pretty confident that they would actually hit those full-year numbers, which implied, you know, the best part of 25-30% profit growth. If they do that, and we don't have long to wait because the year end is the end of September, they'll do just over five pence worth of earnings. The stock price is about 53. Cash, which was £1 million on the balance sheets in March 2018, was £6 million in March this year will have built to 7.2 million pounds or 13 pence by September, so the end of next month. Well, 13 pence is a quarter of the current share price. So hanging firm then. Absolutely. Hang well, in there. It's a cash-adjusted PE ratio of eight. It's a price-to-book value of 1.7 times. Unless business elsewhere has deteriorated and they haven't issued anything since our discussion, I see no reason not to hold on because it's a single-digit earnings multiple. And also the board, the director said, look, you know, we're going to double the dividend to one pence a share, the full year results, um, but we're going to keep most of the cash for an acquisition. We're looking at acquisitions mm. to do. So that's going to be accredited to earnings because six million, seven million cash in the balance sheet is earning absolutely nothing at the moment. Mm. Um, oh, it's well for the second half of the portfolio. Well, it does. I mean, I... I, I and unless unless it warns and profits, and there's nothing to suggest that's going to happen again, the shares are too cheap. Well, let's uh, let's touch wood. We will do, John. Anyway, it's been a, it's been a good first half, and uh, thank you for talking us through uh, the portfolio, Simon. What you didn't mention, very modestly, is that this performance means that you've beaten every single small cap fund in the UK. I have the, the best. Actually, the best performing small cap investment trust was Gresham House Strategic. I put that into my 2016 bargain share portfolio. Hedge, hedge your bets on that front. <laughs> well, no, even better, John. At um, I was away over Christmas, but before I left, I left a column to be published, which went into the first week of um, January, on Gresham House Strategic, outlining why this company was going to outperform the market. Listen, let's not give everything away now. Let's talk about that next time. And, uh, we will do. Give Rita something to uh, go back into the archive, have a look at that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Simon. I mean, that's, that, that, we've covered a lot of ground there. That's huge. Let me just talk you all through what else we've got in the magazine this week. Um, it's been another busy week on the results front. Uh, loads and loads going on there. Mostly blue chips uh, like WPP and Prudential. Philip Ryland has dug into the new IFRS 16 regulation, which is about lease accounting and, and how this will affect companies' balance sheets, um, using a really interesting example. It's, it's really worth knowing about because it can, can make a substantial difference to, to how, how financially healthy companies look. John Rosier has, uh, has updated his, uh, his, his uh, private investor portfolio. Lots in the personal finance fund section, which they will talk about tomorrow, including a great piece from our new writer, Dave Baxter, on... Uh, how you can get sort of US light exposure at the moment when there's lots of worries about the US being potentially overvalued uh, and a great piece on uh, managing your pensions allowance. Lots, uh, lots of news, lots of comments, including uh, Simon's six page bargain shares update. <laughs> only, only six pages, John. Only six pages this week. Um, and uh, obviously Phil as well. And he's looking at, you know, in the light of Burford, how even even companies that look quite simple, you have to be very careful how you read the balance sheet to, uh, to, to assess how healthy they are. And the cover feature written by James Norrington, chameleon companies. And he's looking at companies that are really good at managing change that themselves have changed 
and and how you we all as investors need to kind of keep a constant eye on markets and companies to to, to see how they're changing and 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 how we assess how we should hold them basically um thank you all for listening uh thank you simon good to see you again oh, it's great it's great john hope your ankle uh, is fully uh I, fully mended by the time we catch up uh, next time I'm, I'm going to be firmly on terra firma for the next few weeks john excellent pick up the magazine in all good news agents chameleon companies how to survive market and business change we'll be back again next week thank you hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details